Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992. Here from our perch in 2023, I am one of your hosts, Phyllis Gove. I'm your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your regular host, ambiguously queer Jim Broadbent. Um, I, my, fa- <laughs> my favorite thing about this movie is that, like, oh. is that, like, there, you're like the Dill thing. Is it mm-hmm. is, is a reveal, but like if you are like in queer culture, like is he at a gay bar? And like the but like because Jim Broadbent's there, you're like, well, Jim Broadbent, of course, that's fine. Straight as an arrow, right, man. Uh, so you, so your brain's like, no, of course, Jim Broadbent would not be. Yeah, at a gay possibly. Bar. Yeah. Uh, with us today, uh, freelance journalist Caitlin Burns and Oliver Ashkline, co-hosts of the Cancel Me Daddy podcast, are with us today to talk about. The Crying Game, a, um, uh, I don't want to say a problematic movie. Is it a problematic movie? Should we deem it problematic, Emily? We're canceling it today. We're canceling it today? We're removing the film from the internet. No, I I like this movie. I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't think it's great. I think it has problems, but I like it. On the whole, I like it. So that's that's my, as a trans person, I have now exonerated it forever. No one can ever have another opinion. (laughs) I, I I mean, listen, the world appreciates that, Neil Jordan in particular, yeah. but I'll just say this. Um, I saw this movie maybe in the early to mid-90s, had notions, uh, I mean, of it, um, but certainly had not sat down to watch it, you know, in a very, very long time. Um didn't really remember that it's really an IRA thriller um, and that ultimately that's 
kind of what the movie's a, on its surface is sort of about. And 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 I would also say too that I didn't know that the I'm not even going to call it a twist because I don't really believe it to be a twist, but the reveal mm-hmm. of Dill is really like an hour from the end of this movie. So like it's not the big ending thing. Mm-hmm. It's much more midpoint and then it's Stephen Ray's character dealing with said reveal and grappling with his own, I, I guess, attraction to this person or, or feelings he's, towards this person. He's grappling like the whole movie is about his feelings about masculinity Correct. and men and penises. Like there's the scene where he has to help. Penises. He has to help Forrest Whitaker pee. And you're yeah. like, oh, wait, he's like terrified. Yeah. Brother. And it, yeah, so there's. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot going on here. It's, there's a lot yeah. going on in this movie. But uh, Caitlin Albrash, thoughts uh, in general before before I give a little bit of context? Yeah, so I wanted to say uh, I had never seen this movie before, literally yesterday, before we were recording this. Um, but having said that, I felt like I had seen the movie through all of the pop culture references sure. to that quote unquote reveal scene, mm. um, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh and I I I low-key was dreading watching this um when I sat down. I, I was yeah. talking to some friends on Discord. I was like, I'm actually not really in the mood to watch this. <laughs> and I actually came away like appreciating this movie um uh, in a way that was really surprising to me. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a good baseline to start with. I have sure. a lot of conflicting feelings about this, uh, but I enjoyed a lot more of this movie than I was expecting to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'll go ahead. Yeah, I would I would say the same. I hadn't seen it before, and I had mostly, uh, you know, been aware of it from the the very, uh, you know, I would I, w- I would say the scene in the middle is is pretty yikes. Um, and so my kind of understanding of the film was based around that. And so I was, uh, I expected it to be worse than it was, but it is still quite bad. Um, and so, yeah, having a lot of um, conflicting feelings about it. I I think that, you know, for for me, there were I also just to be clear have very conflicted feelings about it. It it is not a movie that I think is particularly. Um, I don't even know that it's clear of its intent at times. Seven mm-hmm. out of five stars. Go ahead. Sure, but I, I I you know in the minimal amount of research that I did, I think Emily, you probably did more than I did in terms of uh you know digging deep into its its release and the way that it was uh, sort of delineated to the world at the time. But, you know, Neil Jordan didn't intend for Dill to be trans in his original script of the film. It, it sort of, he kind of backed into it, um, which, you know, at the time, I guess, I don't want to say I can understand it, but I guess I sort of was like, okay, I guess he felt like this was, an interesting thing to do, but because that intent isn't necessarily there, it feels a little flippant about it, Mm. which I don't know is necessarily a good or bad thing in a weird way. Like, I I don't even really know how to, how to juggle it. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Oh, I think one thing that as I watched it and I found out um, after watching it that Dill wasn't intended to be trans, but I watched it and I'm like, well, the way that the movie deals with her transness is not great. But in a lot of other ways, she's portrayed like women were portrayed in film around that time. It's very like manic pixie dream girl. It's very like that. And so it was this weird mix of like, oh, they're really... um, they're really focusing on her transness in a way that is is yikes but other ways you know she she's treated like a real woman um and and treated in a way that is not great it's you know how women were treated in film in 1992 um but you know that yeah it it was very uh strange but it's also i i'll just want to say one thing very quickly emily i i I think that jay davidson's performance is really lovely Mm -hmm. like i think that um, she's bringing something really uh, genuine and and loving and very charming, charismatic. Like all of those things are there. The manic pixie dream girl stuff aside, I'm just speaking in terms of like the energy that she's portraying on screen. Um, you know, I, I think that she very much uh, is deserving of her um, supporting actress academy award nomination supporting um, actor phil oh my apologies here, no, I, no, wasn't, I wasn't sure when i said here's it the, here's I, the I, thing about jay davidson is that he is a cis gay man however he presents mm-hmm. very androgynously he seems to like be very comfortable with gender fluidity um okay. uh, so far so, as my we, apologies for no for no that's fine that's fine so far as wikipedia is aware he uses he him pronouns so i'm going to do okay. that throughout but okay. like he is like sure. someone who presents in a variety of gender contexts which is i think why this performance is stronger than you know I don't know, like Chris Sarandon in Talk Day Afternoon, you know? I mean, still, so, I mean, also a good performance for what it's worth, but I know what you're saying. Uh, it, it, it is, I mean, it, the Jay Davidson thing I also find fascinating, and we'll get into it as we as we keep going, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, two performances and then saying, fuck Hollywood, mm-hmm. reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I probably after those circumstances might too what if your two movies were crying game and stargate what if that was just like i would be so <laughs> proud of my you know like, listen two for two i'm done um <laughs> uh, but yeah i i do think uh it is it's it's weird because and you alluded to this um both of you alluded to this in terms of the pop culture-ness of this film and emily referred to it in, on our email chain you know, Ace Ventura maybe being the, the the worst culprit of this really kind of awful portrayal of this movie. I was really kind of girding my loins for this film being like, this is going to be a really brutal experience. And it's actually kind of not. And I only say that in the sense that I don't feel as though it is a... Uh, it, it wasn't as outside of the one scene, which I do think is handled poorly in terms of the reveal i do think by and large this movie is it's better than i expected it to be i guess is ultimately what i'm coming i think neil jordan is uh as far as he's ever said he's a cis straight guy and he's had five kids with women so he's obviously got some attraction to women uh sure one i think a lot of gay movies movies. (laughs) he makes a lot of movies he makes a lot of movies about queer characters he's fascinated by queer people but he's fascinated about them in the way an outsider would be but he's also like deeply compassionate as a filmmaker so it's this like weird thing of influences where it's like everything he does in the crying game is the sort of thing a cis straight guy would be like well that's you know what it would be like to be a trans woman but he does it with so much compassion that you're sort of like 
uh, for instance, the scene where um, Dill needs to go into hiding. So uh, uh, Fergus, you know, um, disguises her in Jody's old cricket uniform and cuts off her hair and everything. So she's a little bit more boyish. And like, it still doesn't entirely work because, you know, she, she, she's not a boy, but um, yeah, like that scene is like the sort of thing that a cis straight guy would be like, well, here's what a trans woman would have to go through. And it's like, <sighs> so gross, but also you're watching it and both his, both uh, Jordan's direction and Davidson's performance are so like soulful that you're like, well, he's kind of selling it. So it's like this weird combination of, of, of kind of horrible content, but also like, really lovely presentation that creates a real uh weird taste in one's mouth yeah i'm glad you mentioned yeah i'm glad you mentioned the haircutting scene because i think uh to me okay i had two visceral reactions to scenes in this movie and one of them was not with the reveal actually um the first one was um when dill gets up on stage and starts singing the crying game i had like a ptsd reaction from Ace Ventura, actually, because they play the Crying Game song during their just awful reveal, and that traumatized me as a kid when I watched it. Um, so that was my first reaction. But my strongest emotional reaction throughout the entire film was when he was cutting her hair and she was sobbing. Um, I've written about this before, but like the forcible cutting of trans women's hair is like the universal. Uh, suppression mechanism that the world over uses against us. Um, I've talked with trans women in the Middle East, and when they get arrested for being trans in public, the first thing they do when they get to the police station is they cut their hair. When trans women get thrown in men's prisons, the first thing they do is they cut their hair. You remember Chelsea Manning was in a military prison. She actually sued for the right to have longer hair, and I believe she lost that case. Um, So you know, while Emily's talking about, well, you know, this is a cis guy's uh, idea of what a trans woman would have to go through to go into hiding, I agree with that. But I think there's a, like an emotional kernel of truth to it mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the scene that made me cry throughout the entire, like more than any other scene in the whole movie, that's the one that made me cry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, that was the, the most relatable that Dill's character was to me as a trans woman. I do think that scene is um, really powerful on many levels. Obviously, everything that you're speaking of, Caitlin. I, I also just think, too, that there, there's something very um, uh, almost primal about it to some degree um, that I think that everyone is kind of tapped into, whether consciously or unconsciously. There, There's a lot kind of going on there. And, and, and I, I do think that there's no question in my opinion that Dill's the most fascinating character in the film. And I would argue again, whether Neil Jordan is conscious of it or not, I do think is giving her the most complexity and the most kind of um, uh, intentionality behind it. I I think that um, Fergus's character, and and I I mean, it's interesting. I was watching this film and I don't know what you guys think of Stephen Ray. But, like, he's always a little bit laconic to me as an actor. I, I never feel as though he's... Um, it's not as though he's not fully engaged, because I'm sure he is. But there is something kind of flat about him to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I, I, I was watching this hoping for more kind of passion from him and I didn't necessarily get it. And I don't know if that's his natural state. I actually think he's great in interview with the vampire because he's playing it super broad and he's just like a mustache twirling villain and it, it works. But um, in this, I just found myself just watching it being like, do you really care, man? I don't know. It's It was strange to me. I um I like I like that performance. I think I like what I think this movie is trying to do is another thing that like we kind of have to pop up prop up against, which is I forgot how much this movie's about Irish and yeah. U- UK politics of the yes. early nineties. Forgot how much is about the IRA and the troubles. It's Patriot games and again. Like, like it had a hugely kind of poor reception in the UK because the critics there were like, "This movie's politics are like so <laughs> risable." And of course, we watched it in the US, and like all we thought about was you know uh, Dill's penis. But yeah. like, there's like like I think he's trying to do some sort of metaphor with dill for some sort of political thing i don't understand but i think it's Mm. like something about like 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 your true nature you know coming to the surface and like the ways in which um i mean it's very much the whole movie is about the ways in which masculinity perverts and makes toxic these these many things and yeah it's all like identity politics in a weird way right irish identity politics yeah right Mm -hmm. it's 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 kind Mm -hmm. of weird in that i mean that was the thing that i the the overarching sense i got from this film ultimately is that it's kind of two movies that don't totally work together mm. which is that it it's it's bookended by 20 minutes to a half an hour of ira politics and what's going on between the irish and the uk and then sort of sandwiched in the middle is this love story so it does kind of feel at odds with itself Especially when you get to the end with the shootout and the, and the, and you know, I mean, all this sort of stuff where you're just like, what's really like, it is a little jarring. I'm not, I'm Mm. not totally sure that it all kind of gels. And, and I also feel like it's worth, you know, I I sort of loosely mentioned it earlier, but like this movie got a lot of Oscar nominations. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Um, Got six Academy Award nominations, best picture, best editing, best actor, best supporting actor, best director, best original screenplay. Um, it doesn't win any of them. It won screenplay. Did it really? It won screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. My apologies. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it wins screenplay. So Neil Jordan is an Academy Award winning Good for him. Honestly. Good for him. <laughs> nothing, nothing against that. Um, you know, we we will inevitably have to talk of of Voldemort, uh, aka Harvey Weinstein, and and what this film yeah. uh, brought uh, to the world. But I'm just sort of watching this film, thinking to myself, you know, Emily and I did Malcolm X a few months ago, and you're just like, really? This is <laughs> like, a, this is a hot take. Malcolm X is a better film than The Crying Game. Yes, my point. I, like, I, I'm just like, what are we doing? As research for this, I watched all of Siskel and Ebert. If we picked the winners, Oscars 1992, because they had a huge, they had a huge fight over this movie in that thing. The best. And like it's most of it was, most of it was cut out and apparently happened off camera. But uh, <laughs> the Little babies, those two. The end of that special is them both bemoaning how Malcolm X wasn't nominated and picking the worst nominee. And Roger Ebert's like, the worst nominee is A Few Good Men for Best Picture because they passed over Malcolm X for this. And I'm just saying that because I know it'll make Phil mad. 
God damn you. I mean, I'm sorry, but can we I think Emily, we can both agree that scent of a woman yeah, has scent no of a woman is absolutely there. the worst. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. But no. But it, it it's it is just one of those things where I was just sort of like you you alluded to this earlier, Emily, but it the the American reception of this film feels so indebted to the reveal and the audacity, quote-unquote, of this movie and Miramax weaponizing that mm-hmm. and the media weaponizing that to turn this film into, quite frankly, a sizable box office success, um, that that kind of overshadows everything else i do want to give a little bit of context for this film to the people that perhaps haven't seen it uh irish republican army member fergus played by stephen ray forms an unexpected bond with jody played by forrest whitaker a kidnapped british soldier in his custody despite the warnings of fellow ira members jude played by miranda richardson and mcguire played by adrian dunbar jody makes fergus promise he'll visit his girlfriend jill dill played by jay davidson in london when fergus flees to the city he seeks her out hounded by his former ira colleagues he finds himself increasingly drawn to the enigmatic and surprising dill the crying game opened on november 25th 1992 against home alone 2 lost in new york <laughs> aladdin the bodyguard bram stroker's dracula malcolm x and of course the mighty ducks uh it would go on to make 71 million dollars on a five million dollar budget uh it has 94 percent on rotten tomatoes from critics 78 from audiences i mentioned it obviously got a bunch of oscar nominations entertainment weekly in november of 97 magazine uh picked this as one of the 50 greatest independent films better read a little bit of roger ebert's four-star review of this film saying some movies keep you guessing some movies make you care once in a while a movie comes along that does both those things at the same time it's not easy neil jordan's the crying game keeps us involved and committed throughout one plot twist after another it's one of the best films of 1992 jordan's wonderful film does what hitchcock's very different film also did it involves us deeply in a story and then reveals that the story is really about something else uh, we may have been fooled, but so uh, was the hero, and the plot reveals itself. We find ourselves, exactly, uh, <laughs> all of his faces, uh, identifying more and more with him. The film is complex and labyrinthian, both in terms of both plotting and in terms of its matters to the heart that follow. Most movies' love stories begin as a given. We know from the first frame who will be together in the last. Here, there are times when we know nothing, and times when we know less than that yet because we care about the characters we can't help liking them it's surprising how the love story transcends all the plot turns to take on an importance of its own the crying game is one of a very few films that wants to do something unexpected and challenging and succeeds beyond its ambitions see this film then shut up about it uh i i that was literally how he ends his review um i i you know i <laughs> Like, I, like Roger had worked in the arts for some time and he had met queer people. He was aware that like queer people like could it, love. It, it literally like cracks his head open and just like, it's like this. It's like, he'd never seen anything like this film before. Um, I, I think he was so just gobsmacked by, and again, I don't want to say this word, necessarily positively or negatively but the audacity of this movie i think he just truly was so taken with the the i guess the gumption it had to do this i just the, i don't know i mean oh my god a trans woman on my yeah, like, screen it's crazy the, like the trope of this person is this this woman is actually you know not a woman or whatever like that trope 
was already around at this point. And I think right. that what people thought was audacious about this is that it it made Dill a human being in some capacity. She's mm-hmm. allowed to be a woman who the film treats as misogynistically as it would treat any other woman at that time in 1992, as as, as Oliver alluded to. Right. And it's like, there, so there is this element of you read some of the press around this time. And A, reading it from a 2023 lens, you will note how many reviews just don't use pronouns to refer to Dill. They will refer to her as the hairdresser, you know, because they want to preserve the twist. But in their minds, you know, the reality of Dill's genitalia uh, overcomes her gender identity. And it's 1992, and these are all cis people. So, like, in some level, I understand why they're doing that. But reading it from a 2023 perspective, like, it's so wild. Because, like, if you read those reviews now, you'd be like, well, I know the twist. (laughs) Like, I know what this big reveal they're talking around is. But at the time, everybody was just like, well, of course, you know, Dill's gender is attached to what's in her pants. So it's it's this, this weird journey. But, like... Yeah, the fact that this movie treats her with compassion, and I, I, I love the Silence of the Lambs, which comes out a year before this, and that movie goes out of its way to be like Buffalo Bill is not a transsexual, and then says that transsexuals are very passive, which is funny to me every time. But, uh, but you're very passive, Emily. <laughs> but that is a that is a movie that that is a movie that while it has some space in its mind for the humanity of Buffalo Bill, is not particularly interested in it in the way that this is mm-hmm. with Dill. And I, but I do yeah. think. I do think that this movie was predominantly read as being about a gay relationship uh, in 1992. And like, that was the, that was a lot of the lens that, that critics, American Mm. critics, to be clear, British critics were all like, why are you being nice to the IRA? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That American critics were reading it through. I think that the, I think there is a gay love story in this movie, but it's not between Dill and Fergus. It's between Mm. Fergus and Jody. Mm hmm. 100%. 100%. Um, yeah. I was really struck by that. Uh, especially the one scene where, like, Dill is is going down on Fergus, and at the climax, he, like, imagines uh, Jody, like, mm. p- pitching the cricket ball to him, or whatever, bowling. I think it's bowling. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know cricket. It's, like, a, a weird foreign yeah, sport. Know. So, yeah. Um, and the other interesting part of it too, because the whole movie is from Fergus's uh, perspective, and the bar that all of those scenes take place in—the very clearly queer bar, which I picked up on immediately—like <laughs> all the patrons are depicted as very like cis passing in the first like couple scenes in the bar, and then after the reveal, the first scene in the bar, like you could tell every single person was queer coded in the bar, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of an interesting vaguely problematic filmmaking choice uh to do um i very much got the sense of uh watch out these people are hiding in plain sight if you don't pay attention to the details type of Mm -hmm. thing which i think is a very common attitude in 1992 um yeah and like you could do a super cut of this movie of just the love story scenes between Dill and Fergus and literally just call it the chaser because Fergus acts like every <laughs> chaser I've ever met uh, as a trans woman who dates cis men. 
I kind of, I actually, I was thinking about this movie from Dill's perspective. And I, you know, when we, when they, when they uh, launched the crying game universe uh, and uh, cinematic universe, and I, I am invited to make Dill origins um the uh but like the movie the this movie from dill's perspective is interesting because she has a similarly huge reveal that we don't perceive as a reveal because we followed fergus from the first but she learns that like her boyfriend killed her previous boyfriend which is like a pretty big thing to learn and yeah. like i do think Did he technically kill him i mean he chased no, him the from british the killed him because the british yeah. are evil and up the yeah. ira and uh, yeah listen no, sorry no, my irish no ancestry jumped out <laughs> listen, I apologize. listen i have no at this moment in time i don't find the british particularly sympathetic for some reason as a trans person uh <laughs> but uh <laughs> No, I one one complaint I have about this movie is that I think it would be a stronger story if Fergus had killed Jody. I get the political yeah. implications of the British having run over their own soldier, but like it's uh yeah, I, I think that that would add more guilt. But yes, he was he's aware of the death of Jody. He was complicit in it to some extent. And so that's like a huge thing for Dill to find out. And also to find out that, you know, from her perspective as a British citizen, that, like, he's a member of, like, a terrorist organization. Like, the biggest reveals in this movie are from her perspective. And for as much as I agree with with Caitlin's read of this is presenting the bar as, like, oh, they're hiding in plain sight. I do think Jordan is using the bar as a way to, like, not make Dill such a reveal when she says, I thought you knew, didn't you know? Like, of, of course she thought he knew. That's, you know, this bar is for people who are queer or are, you know, chasers. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's like, a, it is the thing that he sort of, I think this, the reveal in this movie is not supposed to be as big of a reveal as it's been sold as. I think a lot of the problems with this movie, this movie has problems, to be clear, but I think a lot of the problems with its legacy are from the marketing and from the movies that followed in its footsteps. If it was just kind of like a weird example of early 90s transphobic storytelling, we would be like, yeah, but like also Dill gets to be a whole human being, which was really rare at the time. And yet it wasn't like the, it, this whole like cottage industry built up around not revealing the twist, which again, within the context of the film is not much yeah. of a twist. Well, it's, it's you know, Oh, so go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of the like er story of vomiting after yep, finding out this yeah. man mm-hmm. uh, hooks up with a trans woman. It's like they Thanos snapped that into existence. Yep, uh, they did. And it's not just Ace Ventura; it's Family Guy, it's Naked Gun. Like the the list of works that came out in the immediate aftermath mm-hmm. uh, uh, will blow your mind. And I've I've written about most of yeah. them, and I've watched and forgotten most of them the netflix documentary disclosure does a really great breakdown of all of this too um so yeah that was a source of surprise for me in that like i didn't think this film was as as i thought this film was like a, a fraction as transphobic as all of the like later like trans vomiting trademark Mm -hmm. scenes like made it out to be yeah oh i guess like i've been thinking that one of the like the biggest failure at least in my eyes of this film in the way that it's told um is that uh fergus is like 
the nice relatable guy and not portrayed as someone who is who has not worked through his shit and who has to who has to deal with <laughs> with his own shit and is hurting people um because of it because he's portrayed as such a sympathetic um guy who's just trying to do the right thing um and you know the, those things may be true or whatever but he's still got his shit to work through and he's taking it out on other people and he kind of sucks and so i wish the film portrayed that part of it because i think it would have been a lot stronger mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it's it, it's Im- yeah, it's through. implicit in a way where i think it needed to be made explicit once yeah. or twice like i do you know i do think the scene the scene where he's having struggling to help jody p makes a lot there's a lot more there in retrospect but it's you know it, it it happens so early in the film that you're like well yeah i mean i've never had to help someone else pee seems like it might be tricky um so uh i i was just i mean to to, to underlay what you were saying oliver that this film ends you know whatever we're talking about talking about it out of order but like with with him in prison mm-hmm. right having taken the fall for dill murdering jude mm-hmm. um and he seems like pretty okay with it mm-hmm. like the, the, the scene the final scene between him and dill is playful ultimately they're kind of coupley like it's not kinda, it's not right? confirmed that they're a couple but it's it certainly seems like they're at least in each other's lives to a real yeah. extensive I, I agree with that but i also get the impression that on some level fergus is like yeah i guess i belong here I guess this is okay. Like he just seems very okay with this literal prison that he's in. And it does feel as though he's just such a kind of introverted and and kind of self-loathing person Mm -hmm. that on some level, you're just sort of like, he seems content with the fact that like, yeah, what's another prison? I'm in a prison anyway of my mind. Uh-huh. I mean, I might as well be in a literal one. Uh, it's 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 odd to say the least. Well, and I've... played to your point, Emily, as kind of coupley, kind of sweet. He's regaling her with the story of the scorpion and the and the frog that that Jody tells him at the beginning of the film, which you know obviously isn't uh, coincidental. <laughs> and you're just sort of like. I guess they're making it work. I don't really get it. Like, I don't really get the final vibe that we're left with in terms of the arc of Fergus's character and and whether or not he feels like this is penance for something. My interpretation of it was he he was okay with the prison time because he felt like it he deserved it for his Jody's part in death. Jody's death. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also he fulfilled Jody's wish of taking care of Dill. Sure. By also taking the fall for her, even though, like, I don't, I, 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 don't I think, think he also subjected Dill to a lot of. Yeah, I don't uh, think Dill did anything wrong. Problems. Like, uh, I think you know the 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 IRA woman whose name I have forgotten. I apologize. Kind of deserved to Jude. die. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jude kind of deserved to die. I yeah, standard from the beginning. Um, Miranda Richardson, great though. Oh yeah, I mean, no, the performance was amazing because you know she made me hate her from from the yeah, start. Yeah. Um, but like the like what the murder that Dill you know committed uh, at the end was entirely instigated by Fergus. If Fergus hadn't made the decisions that he made throughout the entire film, Dill wouldn't have killed anybody. I don't think. Um, 
Uh, and I, yeah. the other thing too is it did bother me a little bit that there's there's a trans woman killing somebody on screen again, which is such a played out trope. Uh, and it was a theme of movies at the time that had trans women in it. Um, you know, who is it that Michael Caine played? Which movie was that where he was? Dressed to Kill? Dressed to Kill, yeah. Dressed to Kill, yeah. That's another one that came to mind. And, of course, Psycho is the the, mm-hmm. the originator, I think, of that yeah. idea. Yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned Silence of the Lambs, which also sort of plays with that idea. Um, so I didn't really appreciate that, especially because of the sure. fact that, like, this is all Fergus is doing. Like he did this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my uh, opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, yes, yes. Psycho originates that trope, but it is based on like a misunderstanding of what happened with real life serial killer, Ed Gein, uh, mm-hmm. who is like the, like the stories about Ed Gein, which were largely made up, like form the basis of so many different serial killers of so many different vintages in fiction um uh from well we're not i'm not even going to keep talking about ed gein this is not ed gein (laughs) cast though it should be um the uh but yeah i i think one thing i think is interesting about dill is that the film sets her up as a femme fatale because it is broadly speaking a noir so like it slots her into that role in like a really like standard way but then it also is sort of like interested in the way that her role as a femme fatale is complicated by her being a trans woman but also like not as interested as it maybe could be if it was from her perspective but uh but yeah like so in that sense um you know um the ending of the movie him taking the fall for her is like an interesting inversion of a classic uh noir trope um but yeah i i don't know you know her just like suddenly (laughs) killing someone in like just like gunning them down i'm like I, you know, cold blood yeah yeah Seems- yeah although i will say if somebody forcibly cut my hair i would also be kind of murderous I'm not gonna yeah. Lie. yeah yeah i i think it's worth also noting um to your to, to your point emily that you know one of the things mixed into dill's um hatred of jude is the fact that jude is biologically a woman right or or however you want to call it right mm-hmm. she talks about the way that she seduces jody right that she used her feminine wiles or her body in order to seduce him um and that that creates a whole other kind of i would argue problematic layer to this that like her killing jude for being uh, however you want to call it there the, the, this sort of There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey dave yeah randy since we founded bombas we've always said our socks underwear and t-shirts are super soft any new ideas maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy wait what i got it bombas absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It, it, I don't even want to say it's a self-loathing, but there's something going on there that feels not great to me um, in terms of her hatred towards Jude for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that, that stuff also feels very, I don't know, messy to me and not and and not great don't don't like it um i sent i sent out a bad link in my newsletter this morning and now it's not working for anybody and so i'm just like this is just i'm having to deal with that as we're talking about (laughs) the crime game and my baby's daycare is canceled today and she's screaming in the other room this is a great time to be talking about the crying game. So I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're you're fine, Phil. You're fine, Phil. It's just, it's just life. I just, I like to like talk about my personal problems on our movie. As as you should. Uh, I I, I guess I, I just wanted to kind of highlight that because I do the, 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 not the Jude component, Mm -hmm. because I do feel as though, again, this, this is when I felt like the film's, written by a cis white man shows itself most glaringly in terms of a a lack of understanding of the the complexities of it. it, It's a cis person's understanding of like the surface level of, of trans people's lives. The sort of seducing with feminine wiles thing is very common sort of taunt that comes from uh, transphobic cis women, particularly um you see this a lot on twitter where the viciously anti-trans people are like uh you know i just gave birth this is something that a trans woman can never have and i'm like you just have a child shouldn't this be the happiest day of your life leave me out of it like what's your problem right so i think that that is very much a cis lens type of deal um it's like a claim to womanhood uh that is almost like a trump card for a lot of transphobic cis women. Um, and it is problematic to portray Dell as, you know, being motivated in part by that uh, in, in murdering this is the cis woman lead uh, um, supporting actress, uh, supporting character, excuse me, um, at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just, and again, I not not to state the obvious, but the but the 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 anti-trans notion is so superficial when everything is said and done. And again, it comes back to sort of people looking for easy answers to things mm. and 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 wanting to sort of, I mean, listen, the, I I am Canadian, and I bring this up only to say that that the the way mental health is handled in Canada, I would argue is, is considerably better than the way it's handled down here. What? And I think a lot of it, I know there's something that's wrong Uh, with the United States of America. I'm sorry. Um, But I do think that so much of it comes down to the fact that uh, the, the messiness of emotions and of feelings and of identity and all these things. There's just such a swath of this country that has no interest in dealing with those things. Mm-hmm. And they just want everything to be tactile and physical. So it just becomes so kind of binary um, and black and white. Um, and I think that this particular portion of the film, that just feels very writ large to me that, 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 it, that it was necessary for it to be something in our physical universe rather than something that is emotional. Um, I think is, is, 
does a, a huge disservice to the character. I just want everyone to know that I Googled Neil Jordan turf and it appears he's fine. It appears great. He's fine. Right. Glad to hear it. Uh, I do think you brought up Neil Jordan and it's worth um, just talking for a quick second. Cause I do think the guy has a somewhat fascinating career. Um, I kind of love he, Neil Jordan. Kinda yeah, I do. T- I mean, I do too. I, I think he's got a lot of, I mean, weird movies movies that i'm not sure he's really dealing with particularly kind of every movie he makes is problematic in a weird way and the weirdness overcomes the problematicness (laughs) for me so i'm just like what the fuck are you doing here jordan i love you come give me a hug i i I mean i feel like there's definitely i do it's funny that you bring that up because there's a part i'm looking at his filmography right now and i'm like this is kind of a, a an Emily filmography, and I say that in 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 the way that like all these movies are kind of like messed up metaphors for other things, yeah. messy and kind of crazy. Like Company of Wolves, his sort of his first. Oh film. my god, I love that movie. God, that's what I'm saying. Like this is this feels like a classic. It's like a fairy tale horror movie, mm-hmm. um, a sort of Little Red Riding Hood thing um, that comes out in '84. Mona Lisa, which is a legit great film with uh, Bob Hoskins, uh, comes out in '86. We're No Angels. What are your thoughts on Weirdo Angels? Emily? You know what? I've actually never seen Weirdo okay. Angels, but it sounds like a movie I'd love because you know, it kind of does. From Neil uh, Sean Penn, De Niro, Demi Moore, and written by David Mamet. <laughs> I'm just like, where they're pretending to be uh, priests. Great. I don't know. Uh, then you've got The Crying Game, obviously. Interview with the Vampire, which I adore. I know. I don't know. You're. Are you a fan of Interview with the Vampire, Emily? I like it. I think it. Oh, I. Okay. I, I think it loses. I'm trying to remember why. I think it loses something after Kirsten Dunst kind of leaves it. Like I think she's she's in it for most of the movie. But I know what you're yeah, but I just I, yeah, I just mean like yeah, it kind of, there's something it loses like sure. thirty minutes from the end, and I can't remember exactly what it is. But uh, yeah, uh, um, I, uh, I I I hear you. I get it. Um, someday I hope to talk about that film in more in more detail. Michael Collins, uh, sort of a, a biopicy. That's a bad movie. Liam Neeson, That's a bad Oscar movie. Play. It's Sorry, not a good Neil. movie. Uh, in Dreams, your thoughts on that one, Emily? I I kind I kind of love. In <laughs> yeah, Dreams. I saw that coming. It's such a it's such a it's a t- <laughs> huge mess. It's a huge mess. Such a mess. Uh, we talked about that on our ninety nine podcast. End of the affair, I think, is legit underrated. I think good that movie. Yeah, a really good movie. Uh, the Good Thief, interesting. Nick Nolte playing kind of a, a, a casino and that guy. Movie, that movie has a legit trans woman bodybuilder in it, and she's yeah. not fetishized in any way. It's just sort yeah. of like, look at this. She's part of the team. I'm really interested in. I'm interested in his relationship to trans people because it's all over I, the I fucking map. Too. <laughs> it's all over the place. I mean, Breakfast on Pluto is another trans but sort of drag it's yeah uh, Mm -hmm. with uh with killian murphy in this kind of uh, i don't even know what the gender uh play is i I actually like i actually want it because neil jordan does a lot of trans characters but he tends to portray them through drag and of course trans people do drag all the time it's fine and drag is a way that a lot of people discover they're trans but i'm just sort of interested in I'm interested in our guests uh, inter- I like thoughts about the intersection of trans identities and drag, because that's often how Neil Jordan gets to talking about trans people is like thinking about drag. He's Especially, also not alone in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm just like, yeah, I'm yeah. trying to tie it to the theme of the episode. <laughs> so. uh, no, for sure. I mean, I, I to, to your point, Emily, I feel like Neil Jordan seems fascinated with 
gender roles. Mm -hmm. I know that's a broad term, but that sort of notion of uh, how men and women deal with being men and women as as sort of, you know, whatever. Um, And then you you have The Brave One, which is sort of his last film that's of any note, really, with Jodie Foster, which again, also about sort of, you know, trauma and this woman dealing with it, it's all i don't know uh I, but yeah i i did i did sort of specifically want to hear our guest's thoughts on this question please, of please. the intersection of drag and trans identities i love your thoughts phil but i talk to you every day so oh i think it's so complicated um <laughs> yeah. okay so just drop a bomb into the middle of the just, just throw a grenade into just, this conversation and see how it goes <laughs> I mean, so, okay, so I think that a number of trans people find their identity sometimes through drag, right? Because it's a more, it's it's a way to express femininity, right? In a way that is kind of, uh, at least in, like, cis gay circles, like, culturally acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, like, gender fucky, incredible drag that's happening right now. Um, that's not kind of the the traditional drag, but also... Uh, you know, drag can often be very transmisogynistic and misogynistic um, and is kind of the, can be the performance of femininity and can be very transphobic. And so I think it's this very complicated um, part of queer culture that has a lot of beautiful, innovative things in it where people can express themselves and find themselves and try on different things. And it can also be deeply harmful, um, and I think it's just very complicated. Can I ask a, a question? Because I, I mean, as as a uh, cis white male, um, I I and I'm coming at this just from obviously my mm-hmm. stupid perspective. But it's not stupid. I, well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, but I I do think that the the I I guess what I'm asking is drag has also been weaponized of late mm-hmm. uh-huh. feels absolutely as though, mm-hmm. um the 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 right has taken it as you know uh a gateway drug of some sort that i don't completely understand um <laughs> and i and i guess my question is sort of about there is a, a playfulness and and a and a uh a, a really kind of lovely expression through drag mm-hmm that doesn't even necessarily have a sexual connotation to it. And yet, why do you think it has been weaponized in the way that it has? I, um, I, I want to hear our guest thoughts, but I'm going to talk now, apparently. Please do. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I am interested. I'm fascinated by this because as recently as a couple of years ago, drag seemed like the one queer thing that like, like cis mainstream cis hat society was like, yes, we think this is interesting and fun. And like, I had some issues with the way it was commodified, you know, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race becoming this weird institution has some problems that come with it, you know, just given who RuPaul is. The fact that every single streaming platform was like, we've got to have a reality show about drag queens that was then like the same generic thing about like, living your truth and blah 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 but like it was it was accepted for better or for worse and now like it does feel to me like a weird tactical error that like this is the thing republicans are attacking but it is very much like trans people in general subvert and complicate and make the gender binary you know uh challenge the gender binary 
but uh, I am not doing any of that. Um, not like just speaking in terms of like my presentation. I'm a very traditionally feminine woman. Like if you see me at uh, out in the world, I don't seem you know. I don't. I'm not. I I'm not articulating myself well. But I'm not like someone who's challenging your idea of femininity in any real way. Whereas drag is like directly confronting the contradictions and the bad things about uh, gender and showing the performance for what it is. And Mm. I think that that is easier to attack. And also, I think that a lot of conservatives just think all trans people present like drag queens. They aren't aware that trans men exist. They aren't aware non-binary people exist. They aren't aware that trans women, such as myself, exist. Like, it's very much just like, oh, it's some guy in a wig and a dress, and he's putting on a really silly voice. And drag is a place where we interrogate our attitudes towards gender. And I think there are a lot of people in this country who don't want to interrogate those attitudes because they benefit from them for some reason. So that would be, that's a much, that's like a one sentence answer after no, for sure. seven paragraphs. <laughs> Caitlin, you look like you had something to say. Yeah. I, I'm just reflecting on like my own personal attitude towards drag. Like drag was never really my thing. Um, I remember very early in my transition, like the first couple of times where i like ventured out of the nest as caitlin um and i was still in the closet and i had a gay co-worker and we were going to like gay bars in portland maine which like might as well be siberia um but we there was a drag show that we would go to because it was like every friday or saturday night at this one place and it was a very queer friendly place to be so like i thought i would be safe um and i think the place even closed down uh since then and i remember one time i went out and we were sitting there we were watching the performance and like i wasn't that into it like again i was never a drag person I, i've never watched an episode of rupaul's drag race i kind of can't stand rupaul but that's the story for the day <laughs> um and i remember like the lead like queen on stage like during one of her breaks, she came out into the audience and, like, approached me. And she's like, hey, honey, do you want to, like, get up on stage? And I remember being such a bitch to her. Like, I was like, no, I'm, like, a real trans woman. And I'm like, two week, like two months on HRT, it was a really problematic response. And she looked at me with, like, pity, actually. And it, it sticks with me to this day. And she's like, yeah, like three of those girls up there are on estrogen like who the fuck are you (laughs) and it actually changed my perspective on this and i'm still not a drag person uh but it made it challenged my ideas of like the gender binary within the queer community Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it's caused me to do a lot of introspection about how i view drag queens and it's sort of interesting that we're in this political moment now where they're being attacked right alongside us. Like the existence of drag queens in public, I think it's inherently tied hand in hand with the existence of trans women in public and where one is banned, the other will also be banned. Um, so we, we need like solidarity. And I think that kernel of solidarity started with that frankly embarrassing moment that I had in that bar um all those years ago so these are sort of the things that are on my mind and i got like the vibe actually watching the crying game where i was like right back in that bar where i was like sort of viewed myself as an outsider and i was coming into this space 
that was clear queer. I think they were um, explicit drag queens in the bar in the crying game. Was it the Metro, which I thought was a great name for like mm. for a bar because I'm obsessed with public transit, but that's also a story for another day. Um, and yeah, I, I like I strangely related to Fergus a little bit in those moments where he was like realizing that this is like a drag queer bar. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I certainly like like there is p- periodic. I think that when you are coming out as a a white trans woman. There is a lot of like privilege that you have to like examine that you've always had and that you are, you're not, obviously, you're not losing any of your white privilege. That's just, that just sticks with you. But the, uh, the fact that you are like suddenly leaving behind the comforting embrace of a patriarchy that has always sort of like propped you up, even if you have no idea what to do with it, you have to like interrogate that and examine that. And drag is often like threatening to that. Because in some way, like another thing we haven't really talked about is drag is very inherently tied to queer people of color in many ways. Like a lot of the history of drag runs straight through things like the drag balls in the the 80s Mm -hmm. and 90s, which were very much uh, the products of black and brown uh, people, Uh, often trans women, sometimes cis gay men who were performing in that sense. So like it is uh, inherent to queer communities of color and periodically some just freshly out trans woman goes on on x.com formerly known as twitter uh and says you know i don't like drag drag blah 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 but like just like drag is so important to the history of queer culture and particularly uh queer cultures of color that like it is uh i think it's important to understand it and i do think that the pushback against it is more broadly a pushback against trans identities but it's very much rooted in the fact that like this is inherently an outsider an outsider art that is done in opposition to the mainstream to point out the mainstream's flaws uh and that it you know it only could have emerged from the communities and the time period again which the AIDS HIV crisis in which it did so i i have some thoughts about kind of where this is coming from i think that the first headlines that i saw about the kind of anti drag pushback and the first things that i kind of saw happening was around like story hour at libraries mm-hmm, specifically mm-hmm. um and i think that and a lot of the pushback that we're seeing about trans identities um and trans folks is anything to do with youth And so I think that, you know, drag was seen as something that was family friendly, right, Um, to to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the pushback comes from that and fear around children seeing people existing in different ways, um, not conforming to kind of this, you know, uh, Christian nationalist idea of what a person and a family and a life should be and anything outside of that. Um, is largely, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of pushback against it. And so I think that that's kind of where, where some of this comes from. And I, I also want to say that I think that, um, you know, I said something a minute ago about some drag being, um, uh, you know, transmisogynistic and, and misogynistic. And I, I'm not sure actually where I stand. I think that that's like a, a viewpoint or an idea that I had from a past version of myself. And I'm not quite sure where where I am on that right now. So I just wanted to to flag that. I think all art forms have versions that are misogynistic and transmisogynistic, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah I, uh, I, yeah, 
I appreciate you saying that. I, I feel like uh, certainly on the, on the subject of misogyny, uh, we'd be remiss not to talk about the Harvey Weinstein component of this. Oh God, I forgot we had to talk about him. I was just sitting here. Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I know It, it needs to be said just in the sense that, this is the tip of the spear for Miramax. This is the the first film to to really break through in the United States to sort of for them to sort of pluck this uh, smaller movie, small independent film out of quote unquote obscurity um, and bring it stateside. And it's a hit. I mean, 70, you know, 70 plus million dollars. Um, on what I can imagine was a relatively small investment um, really is the snowball that starts rolling down the hill that turns into this massive corporation. It's it's really interesting. If you read the history of Miramax, they had had a pretty big success in 89 with My Left Foot, which gets gets a number of nominations, wins for Daniel Day-Lewis and Brenda Fricker. Um, And then they have a couple lean years when they can't get anything going and they're like running out of money. And then the crying game comes along and is a massive success. And even yep. more importantly, like breaks through at the Oscars in a huge way. And then they just run the table for like a decade. And Harvey Weinstein, uh, a, a certified trash garbage human being. Uh, bad, bad guy. Bad uh, human. I, we don't need to go into his crimes because they're awful and evil. No. And But if you, if, you, if you need to know, Google him, I guess. Um, the... Uh, don't do that don't do that he's a bad person just take my word for it but like yeah one of the things about this movie's legacy we talked about the ace ventura family guy of it all but also harvey weinstein invents the twist he invents it in marketing because he saw some critics talking about it as a twist Mm -hmm. uh the the great uh trans critic uh, uh the great uh critic rather i should say the great critic edit me there everybody the great critic caden mark gardner who writes a lot about trans film uh from his perspective is uh has done a lot of research into this and is basically like harvey weinstein's the reason we talk about this movie like there's a huge twist in it and even after the oscars after jay davidson's nominated for best supporting actor which in theory should give away quote unquote the twist Harvey's still pushing it he's still like there's a huge there's a twist in this movie you don't want to know in advance and again in terms of like, if you're a queer person and you watch this movie, you're not that surprised that Dill is queer in some capacity. But also, if you are a screenwriter and watch this movie, like that reveal happens at the midway point. It is not a twist. It's not like a thing that puts the whole movie in a new perspective. It is a story beat that the characters have to deal with. It's so mm-hmm. weird, this movie's reputation. And again, that scene is, as as Oliver so eloquently said, yikes. But uh, it it its placement within the movie suggests that it's intending to like push the story in a new direction rather than have us gasp and scream like Ace Ventura. It's you know, in terms of of Miramax as a company, you know, you you sort of you mentioned it, Emily, that like it's struggling. Uh, Crying Game is a big hit. It's mm-hmm. also you know we've talked about the Reservoir Dogs as well um, on another episode. That's the moment when obviously they get in bed with um, with Tarantino, which is obviously incredibly beneficial to them. Um, they have the piano, which is probably their next big thing in 93. And then obviously, as we all know, 94 is Pulp Fiction and Clerks and all of that. And then they're off to the races. But um, it, it, it is worth kind of underlining how sort of 
weaponized this movie was how harvey and bob i'm assuming as well both understood that this twist reveal however you wanted you know that that is the the motivating factor behind this film's success is in weaponizing that moment of the film um a, a scene that we all i think can agree is arguably i don't want to say the worst scene in the movie but it is the it is it is just not it's just not I, executed well. I do wonder in a world where this scene hadn't been weaponized, if we would look at it and just be like, yeah, that didn't work like that for the time, you right, know, right, right. even for the time, that was not a great presentation, but because yeah. it's taken on this cultural re relevance where I've seen that scene dozens of times pulled out of the movie, I've seen this movie yeah. twice now, but it's so like, I, again, I've seen, I saw that have seen this movie before and remembered that being far deeper into the film than it is. It's uh, there is a legit love story between Fergus and Dill after that scene. He has yeah. to over like yeah. there's a scene where he's like, I'm overcoming my prejudice. And it's the most yeah. ham handed like thing you've ever seen. But it's very it's there, you know, it's there. It's I mean. I, for good or bad, this movie is trying to wrestle with some stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you have to sort of give the film some credit for attempting to do what it's doing it's not you know but caitlin you look like you had something to say yeah i'm glad we came back to this actually because it, it ties <laughs> in with an earlier thought that or an earlier thread thought that i had mm -hmm. um where i said you could do a super cut of this movie and call it the chaser and what i meant by that is um i was really struck by fergus always refusing to allow Dill to like call out, call him honey or darling after the reveal, whereas before it was fine. But at the same time, Fergus, after the reveal, is not afraid to have intimacy with her. And that to me is like the 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 thing <laughs> that fucking excuse my language. Nope. No, every, please swear. Every chaser I've ever like dated uh, quote unquote if you want to call it dating because they don't do traditional dating they do some other weird shit um like that is the literally the most relatable thing <laughs> in this whole movie where he's like yeah like i'll kiss you like i'll you know i'll touch you i'll hug you i'll be your emotional support but no 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 you can't call me honey you can't call me darling we can't be in a relationship because that's gay and it's like uh you still have some shit going on but i thought that was actually very realistic yeah i i it's interesting you bring that up because i i also found myself sort of um really feeling for dill during that portion of the film because you could her feelings for fergus seem genuine i i i do believe that she is in love with him to some degree or another um, and this arm's lengthness that he's created, that Fergus has created with Dill, um, is is so hurtful, you know, and and very kind of. Um, I, I'm not even. I don't even know how cognizant he is of how of how offensive it is. To return to an, an earlier point, um, Oliver made like the thing that is uh, most 
misogynistic about this film is that dill seems to only have like one guy she cares about and needs like she's a very beautiful woman she could probably find a different boyfriend who doesn't treat her like that but like fergus is the protagonist therefore she is very like dedicated to making sure everything goes well for him so to the degree that she like like kind of like it doesn't murder for him, but like it, it's in a situation yeah. where, yeah, she, yeah. There's also this, this that... movie does not pass the Bechdel <laughs> test. <by> the way. <laughs> I it, that does bring up for me anyway. There's that other guy that she's in. I don't even. I don't know if it's a relationship with mm. who's just straight up abusive. Mm-hmm. Who's kind of crashing in her apartment. Um, who like there's that whole thing that also feels sort of. I don't know if it's a transactional relationship or what's going on between them, but it also feels muddy and weird. I mean, weird. Who, Go ahead. who hasn't dreamed of smashing and murdering a chaser's goldfish? <laughs> <laughs> this movie's like weirdly savvy about the things that trans women face trying to enter into romantic relationships with men without realizing it's savvy about it. We never see Dill and Jody's relationship, but it seems like they had a genuine love. And now that he's gone, she like can't, she can't find a guy who like will treat her with any amount of respect. And it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, If I was, if I was Dill and a guy came along and was like defending me from this abusive shithead that won't go away in my life, like, fuck, I'd be hooked for life. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, yeah, sorry. I would, I would absolutely fall deeply in love with British accent Forrest Whitaker. And I would also, (laughs) I also, if he died, I'd be like, "Mm, I guess it's Jim Broadbent time. Got to make that happen. (laughs) I mean, Jim Broadbent, who's giving a performance that I don't really know what to make of it. Cause like, I don't know what he's doing in this movie. He's just sort of, I guess he's a conscience of sorts. Yeah. My favorite scene is when Dill and Fergus are flirting through him and like yes. they're sitting on opposite sides of the bar and he's, it's, pat- it's, yeah. it's such a nice little scene. It like is. there's, there's so, there's so many good ideas in this movie and then there's the rest of it. There's yeah. just, there's, there's so much there's, there's like that moment when Broadbent wants to quote unquote warn him of Dill and, and sort of explain the situation. Um, you know, there's, there's that terrible joke on the construction site with Fergus where they talk about how she's not a lady, that whole thing. There's just a lot of like weird kind of winky shitty jokes that are in mm-hmm. the film as well that that feels performative in a way that I don't even really know how to sort of I just don't even know what Neil Jordan's doing there. Uh, Oliver, you seem like you had something you wanted to Sorry. say. I I just you know, I wonder what what it would mean if this movie just portrayed um Fergus accepting Dill as she was and being respectful of her like m- culture and media are so intertwined right like we um are so intertwined in that like good media can change people's minds or can show people a different way. And so like, while this is very real, 
right? Well, while I think that Fergus's, um, you know, reaction and how his, you know, he's a, a shitty guy dealing with shitty stuff and needs to work through his shitty bullshit. Um, <laughs> stated so eloquently. Um, you know, what, what, what if he was someone who had worked through his bullshit and, you know, treated, um, um, treated Dill with respect and kindness and acceptance and what, what would it, I don't know. I just, I want to see more media of trans women being accepted and loved and cared for and, um, you know, I know it was 1992 and, and all media can't be all things, but this was a pretty, uh, pretty influential film. Um, and, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been as influential or as big if uh, Dill was treated with the respect that she deserved, but it just makes me sad that she wasn't. Um, I, go ahead. In reading a lot of the reviews of this movie, they take the, the tack that uh, Ebert took, which is, this plot is so complicated. You won't believe, and the plotting is actually not that complicated. Not that cool. Like it is, you do have to keep in your mind all the stuff that happens in the first 20 minutes through this whole love story. Like it's not that hard because they keep reminding you of Forrest Whitaker. So when Miranda Richardson comes back, you have to remember who she is, even though she's wearing a wig, which, you know, is very confusing for those of us who it's recognize crazy. people by their hair. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, but yeah, it's 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 not that complicated. And the thing about it is it's just complicated because people had never heard of a trans person before. So mm. I'm going to say something a little yeah. bit controversial, but sure. uh, the, the the love plot reminded me of Pearl Harbor, of all things, uh, with the like, <laughs> the like death and love story. And yeah, uh, uh, again, uh, that makes me very weird. And I acknowledge that. No, but... no. <laughs> No, it's great. My only memory of Pearl Harbor is that when the character in it, it, when the character, there's a moment when the character in it is like, you're like, oh, that person's probably going to die. My wife leaned over and said, they're going to bury him in the backyard. And then they did. They literally did. (laughs) I wanted to highlight something uh, from the end of the film that I think is worth noting as we as we wrap this up. But I I do think that um, Dill ties up Fergus and sort of has this um moment where she's kind of railing at him for what he's done but also for every th- person that's treated her poorly in the past and she says something along the lines of everyone thinks be nice to dill and she'll be yours forever and there is sort of that that kind of self-hatred that she's put on herself that she's not deserving of love and that people, that there's some sort of a performative component to it um, that I think is just really um, heartbreaking and, and also sort of powerful in its own way too, that she's sort of um, grappling with that stuff that I, like. again, this all just goes to show that I don't think that this movie is not, saying and doing interesting things but i also just feel like it's all over the place and it doesn't really know how to kind of uh streamline it but what what did you guys think of that of that scene as a trans woman who also believes she's unlovable uh, (laughs) (laughs) i've actually tweeted about this many times um Um, I interpreted the the tying up scene as her sort of reasserting control over 
her surroundings, which she's never really had control of in over the course of the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Fergus never really gives her a straight answer on anything. So correct. correct. Uh, like I think she just finally had enough of, of all of that, and like tying him up was the only way that she saw. But again, that's also problematic because it plays into tropes and and public ideas about trans women being sort of always on the edge of doing something violent um yeah the center of this the center of the movie the core of every one of its problems is that neil jordan has a cis guy's understanding what it would be like to be a trans woman but also just a ton of compassion for what that must be like so he's presenting some of the worst shit imaginable in a way where you're like yeah but still she seems like she's really going through it you know Yeah, it, it it's yeah it's you know Oliver you you made a incredibly valid point of you know we need to be making more films and media about trans people being loved and not being rejected. Um, but I also think that this movie in '92 is kind of trying to wrestle with those ideas, mm-hmm. which to some degree is a worthy thing. The the problem that obvious not to state the obvious the problem is we have not made nearly enough progress since 1992. I've I've been thinking a lot about you and Kenny's episode in '99 about um, Boys Don't Cry, which is a movie that in 1999 is like breaking new ground in a weird way, yeah. and now we see like all the problems with it. And I feel similarly that this movie in 1992 is weirdly positive toward trans people. Like it has tons of problems, but compared to every other portrayal of trans people at that time. It's head and shoulders above them. And I think it is worth remembering that it in that context while also embracing all of the problems that came with the ways it talked about us. I couldn't have said it better. (laughs) You do I mean, Boys Don't Cry was was a was a is continues to be a upsetting and powerful film in its own way, but it's obviously got all sorts of problems mixed into it too. I, I and I wonder I'm genuinely excited and hopeful for where we can go in media but uh it's complicated and i think that people uh i think there's there, there's this inherent rejection of you know uh all of this stuff but um let's rate this film <laughs> um uh which is i'm very curious to see how this goes basically we rate our films on this podcast from zero to 99 zero being the lowest 99 being the highest um uh we rate it from uh before the podcast and after the podcast as though this conversation potentially could have swayed people one way or the other it sometimes does it sometimes doesn't uh i came into this podcast i came into this podcast at like a 68 um and and i'm i'm still kind of there i i don't i don't know that i can really give this film uh it's just really messy and complicated and then on a purely like take take away all of the messaging of this film i also don't necessarily feel like the character arcs are particularly delineated well like i don't i don't know that like the thriller aspects and the love story like it's just it's doing too much stuff to totally stick the landing so i'm gonna stick it at 68 but uh, where are you emily i'm gonna say i watched this in the early 90s because because i knew the twist and i was like well that's Mm -hmm. interesting that's fascinating Mm -hmm. what an interesting twist for your movie what What a cool thing i wonder what yeah and at the time i really loved it i probably would have been like 85 you know somewhere in that range okay now i'm i'm not as hype about it it has a lot of big problems i actually think i'm I'm more interested in the the screenplay than you are i think there's some compelling ideas in it 
Uh, so I'm going to go 72. I'm going to be the high one in this episode. I just that's know impressive. it. It's, it's that's never, it never happens. But it's <laughs> it never gonna, happens. Yeah. Actually, I think it happened for Poison Ivy. But oh. uh... <laughs> <laughs> Another weird problematic movie that Emily's like, but you got to admit. Uh, oh, oh the, queer, we're, we're... the queer phobia scale is, is infinity. Yeah, I was going to say, where is this movie on that? Oh, you, is it just, is it uncharted? It's infinity. Yes. <laughs> Oliver, where are you? I don't. I, I'm. I'm trying to figure out how I want to rate it. I mean, I think that like I'm someone. I think from a like, should you should you watch it today perspective? Like, probably not. Um, sure. <laughs> sure. Um, sure. And so I'm. And and I. I guess like I don't have kind of. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say that like. I, I'm gonna give it like a 50 sure like right I don't the... yeah it's like yeah I yeah I'm so conflicted about it you know if if you kind of want to to understand like historical attitudes about like trans people I think it's sure. worth watching if you're if you're if you're interested in that specifically um but I think if not you probably shouldn't watch it <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah that sounds right uh, Caitlin, what about you? Uh, I will say this is probably my second favorite IRA movie of all time. Uh, behind, oh. of course, the Patriot Games, uh, in which uh, I believe Sean dies again. Yes. <laughs> um, I uh, probably came into this podcast rating it a 69 because it's the funniest number. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Incredible. There you go. Brilliant. Uh, and I think. I don't watch a lot of movies that like predate 1999. Like I, I was born in 82. So I turned 18 in 2000. Um, so really my movies before 99 or so, when I got a car for the first time um, were like child movies. Like you mentioned uh, the mighty ducks came up earlier and I was like, Oh yeah, I saw that in films. That was great. Like, hell yeah. Like um, it was still one of my favorite movies of all time. So I, 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 it was interesting watching just an older film. And the one thing I will say about this film, I don't think I have a, a post, a different post podcast rating for this, but it has made me more interested in like going back and watching, you know, late 80s, early 90s movies because I'm just so tired of of modern movies like... <sighs> I was really into Marvel at one point and like I'm so burnt sure. out on that. Like I need an intellectually stimulating like story. And this gave it to me. And I will give it that. Um so I, I, I differ with my 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 podcast partner, I think, on that. Uh and uh yeah, final verdict is um it's slightly canceled, I think. <laughs> slightly canceled. <laughs> Um, you mentioned your podcast, so please tell us where people can find you and listen to you and 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 hear you cancel things all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, you want to take this one? You can find Cancel Me Daddy wherever you listen to podcasts. So wherever you're listening to this right now, you can probably find it um, and hope you enjoy. It's a great, <laughs> it, is a, it is a really great show. Uh, there's a really great episode where you talk to Emily St. James, which I highly <laughs> she recommend. She sounds great. Everyone. It's true. That's that one is, of my favorite episodes. It's literally though. one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, it's so good. It's top five easy. Thank you. 
Also reading that episode yeah. of 69, by the way. Ooh. <laughs> I just, I got to say, before before we were up, the only movie I've given 69 on this podcast, and the only one I ever will, is Single White Female, because it feels <laughs> perfect for that movie. It does. It's, um, it's, the, only, it's the only score. Please, please, come, please come back and join us and talk about a movie that is less fraught than The Crying <laughs> Yeah, we would love like, to. I, we need to have you on to just like so we can just outright uh, have fun and and uh, and cancel something. <laughs> We're canceling Beethoven. Oh my! Listen, God. don't don't uh, you know hit, hit us up when you make... do the Danish girl. <laughs> oh God! I haven't seen the Danish girl, and I have no interest in seeing this. I actually but... did. I did a, a like a hate watch uh, for surgery, like crowdfunding money. At one point, I did like this live thread hate watch of the Danish girl. Is great, good times. That sounds actually kind of amazing. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds kind of the only way to watch the Danish girl is to hate watch the Danish girl. <laughs> That's a great outline, but, Phil. I they all yeah, yeah right right yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, guys, for coming thank on and, and talking with us about this this very uh, uh, tricky movie. So uh, we very much appreciate it. Thank you so thank much. You. Thanks for Thanks, having guys. us. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.